of God with you this morning. And before we jump into our time this morning in the Word, I want to invite Hubtown kids uh, to head to my left, your right. This morning as they head down that way, uh, Miss uh, Wendy has prepared to teach a lesson uh, on the attribute of God, particularly that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign. If you don't know what that fancy term means, you should find a four-year-old today, this afternoon, after the service, and ask them, and I'm sure that they will be able to clearly give you an explanation as to what that means. I also want to just say this, man, it is, I, I don't know that I'll ever get over singing with the saints here in this building. It is a beautiful, beautiful treat, and I, I recognize some, some new faces here on the front row. They've taken my advice, I suppose. Uh, they got under the spout where the water comes out. Uh, how's, that for, uh, how's that for country preacher? No, they, 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 they're up here. They want to hear the, the songs of the saints. They want to hear the voices in unison together. I, I'm sure that's what it is. I will warn you, this is the, uh, the spitting section, so uh, I want you to be careful. Anybody here ever watch Andy Griffith? Just raise your hand if you're an Andy Griffith nerd. A lot of people like The Office. That's for fools. Andy Griffith is where it at. Let me channel something for you this morning. Colonel Harvey's Indian elixir. My mission in life is health, is zest, is vigor, is the joy of living. No, what I offer you, my friends, is no medicine. It is far more than that. It is a tonic an elixir to purge the body and lift the spirits, to put a light in the eyes and a spring in your step, a lilt in the voice and hope in the human heart. Breathes there a man with souls so dead that he can say he is not interested? Well, she was the first in the crowd to respond. Do you remember who it was? Aunt B. She purchased two bottles. She was experiencing some of the common ailments that plague us in our old age. But all that seemed to be a thing of the past now with Colonel Harvey's Indian elixir. It's not long in that episode before Andy finds Aunt B there at the piano joyfully and dizzily singing Yoo-Hoo Tootsie Goodbye. <laughs> Can that even be said here in this place? I don't know. What does it even mean? There he realizes, our dear friend Andy, he realizes that this miracle elixir is nothing more than 85% alcohol. She had been scammed. Let me ask you this. Where do you turn when things get difficult? Where do you turn when things get challenging? Where can you be found when things don't go well? Culture, the world, Satan himself, your own soul will tempt you to believe and to run to other things apart from Christ. To man-made tonics and elixirs that are nothing more than a scam. Let me tell you, my friends, many of you already know it will take more than a bottle of booze to truly meet the need and heal the heart that you possess. And yet in our fallen human condition, we struggle to believe that. This idea that we are human, intrinsic to our humanity, is that we are dependent creatures. If you were to contrast humanity with the divine, we are dependent from life's first breath until the final breath, we are dependent on those around us. And yet in contrast, God, from the beginning, before time began, from eternity past, has been independent. What makes matters worse is that not only are we human and dependent, but we are fallen and estranged from God. The very life that we need we have been cut off from in this condition. And so where we find ourselves in this fallen human condition is what we truly need can only be supplied. What we honestly, deep down, need can only be satisfied through Jesus Christ. Try as we may, we'll never find satisfaction or true contentment apart from Christ. Philippi Church, they'd heard 
some of the challenges that our dear brother Paul was facing. And they were concerned for him. As you know, over the last few weeks, we've worked through this epistle, Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. They're concerned for him. Here he is in prison. He's got needs. As soon as they're able, this precious gathering of saints, this local church, they collect and gather up what resources they have, and they send it by way of our other brother, Epaphroditus, one of their own. They send him to Paul to provide assistance. And Paul references this in the following verses as we round out Philippians chapter 4. Would you turn with me there? He references their gift. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is what the Apostle Paul says as he references this gift. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every situation, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Would you calm your hearts, bow your heads, and let's, let's ask him to do that. Father, there is no power in human wisdom or cunning. Father, charisma falls flat. It's your word, your spirit, that quickens our hearts, not tonics or elixirs. And so we come to you now to hear of Jesus and to thereby be helped. We pray this in faith. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning or you're trying to understand the, the key principles, the key idea that we're going to try to work or see worked out of this text this morning, it's this. Christian, God will either meet your need or give the strength to endure it. Either way, he always supplies. This is a truth. You need to hear it this morning, each of us. Christian, God will either meet your need or give the strength to endure it. Either way, he always supplies. As we meditate on that truth that rises to the top in this text, I find three things that I see the Christian can be as a result of this truth. One, the Christian can be content in all circumstances. The Christian can be content in all circumstances. Two, as we move on, we're going to see that Christian can be confident in God's supply. Truly, God will supply. We can have confidence in that. And finally, I don't want to hear any snickers here. I had to reach for this one. The Christian can be copious in his giving. The Christian can be generous. Let's go with that one. If it breaks your mind, your OCD mind, the Christian can be generous in its giving. So first... The Christian can be content in all circumstances. Again, remember, one of the reasons that Paul wrote uh, this letter was to thank Philippi Church for their gift to him. 
He had been in need. And listen, God used these folks to meet his need. Look again at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The language Paul's using here is, hey, you have revived your love for me. You've revived your concern for me. It's almost as if the tree had lost all of its leaves for a season. And now finally, the leaves have begun to grow back and there is fruit once again on the limbs. This is the same kind of language that he's using here. At first glance, this comment kind of seems backward and maybe even backhanded. Finally, you've decided again to support me, to have fruit on the limbs. I was starving over here. That's, that's not what he's saying. As soon as the Philippians had heard what, what had befallen Paul and what was happening in his life, they loved him, they cared for him, they desired to help him. But for some reason, unbeknownst to us, they're unable to help him for a period of time. Maybe it was their own poverty. We know that the church at Philippi was an incredibly impoverished church. Maybe it was their own poverty. Maybe they didn't have anything to give, quite literally. Maybe it took some time to make brownies and start a bake sale and gather up the money. Maybe they were collecting tin cans or the equivalent, trying to raise some funds to support their brother who was in need. At any rate, it took some time. Maybe they didn't have what they needed to help. Maybe they didn't know exactly what he needed. Maybe it was because it was winter. They couldn't get a ship out to Paul. Maybe the trade routes were shut down for a short period of time. They weren't able to charter a ship. Maybe it wasn't that at all. Maybe it was they didn't have a messenger. Maybe Epaphroditus who became sick when he arrived with Paul there in Rome. Maybe he was sick before that time again. Maybe, he was wait, maybe they were waiting on him to be healed up. At any rate, they didn't have opportunity, and so they waited. And when they did have opportunity, they were generous, and they took advantage. And Paul is now saying, he wants to show his gratitude. He wants to, in a sense, thank them. But he also wants them to know that he's not panhandling. He's thankful for what they've done in the past. They've been very kind to him, but he's also not begging them. Furthermore, he, he wants them to know that God has taught him in moments and times of difficult situations how to be content the truth is that these saints worry about paul and they've met his needs time and again god's used him and that them in this way for paul they care for him and they don't want to see him suffer they don't want to see him abandoned to the pagans there in rome and to the elements and so uh, knowing that Paul uh, knows their care for him, he says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I'm not in need at the moment. He says, I I've learned that whatever situation I am in, to be content. It's an interesting word. We're going to talk about that word in a moment. He says, I, I know how to be brought low. I, I know how to abound in, in any and every circumstance. Man, that's, that's bold. That's broad. He says, I've learned in every circumstance the secret of facing plenty, the secret of facing hunger, the secret of facing abundance, the secret of facing need. He says, I can do all of these things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe that's the first time you've heard that verse read in context. You're thinking, I need to go home and clean out my coffee cabinet. I've got several mugs that are weird. Maybe you've got some uh, old baseball t-shirts that you think, hey, why is Philippians 4.13 on there? I have no idea. Uh, it really, in context, that just means you know how to lose um, and, uh, and to face suffering there on the ball field. But at any rate, Paul had learned how to be content. And here's what we know. Contentment is not a natural feature of the human race. And all you parents said Amen. Contentment is not a natural feature of the human race. We honestly, if we are honest, struggle to be content. And Paul says as much. He says, I've learned, even the Apostle Paul, he had to learn how to be content. Proverbs 27, verse 20, speaks of this very thing. Sheol and Abaddon, they're never satisfied. In a sense, hell is never satisfied. Fire is never satisfied. And it also says, and never satisfied also are the eyes of men. Never satisfied also is the heart of man. 
What can truly quench our own lusts and desires? Not necessarily even for sinful things, but just for more and more and more. Each of you know, whether you're six years old or 60, you know that there was a time in your life where you just said, if I could just have this one thing, everything would be at peace. Everything would be just right as it should be. And you get that one thing, and for some reason, your satisfaction and contentment evaporated with the morning dew. Where did it go? Instead of one, you need 20. This is the human nature. Never satisfied. Neither our eyes or our our hearts. And all humans from the beginning of time have had to wrestle with that very thing. Even Adam, of all the things that God had given to him, and supplied for him, it was still yet not enough. The Greeks had come to grips with this truth. The word translated content, it really kind of gives this idea uh, of the ultimate goal uh, of Stoicism, and that's to live above need and abundance in such a way as to be self-sufficient. It's really the goal of the Greeks. Not meaning that one is oblivious to circumstances, Not meaning that one doesn't care about their circumstances, but that the true contentment or satisfaction in a person is not determined by their circumstances, but instead it is determined by themselves. The ancient Greeks, they accepted that whatever came to them, came to them and they would receive it without emotion. Stoic like Spock. One is independent of others and of circumstances in the sense of being free from either causing distress or losing their serenity, that serenity that they long for. But it doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside in this philosophy. The Stoic version of Paul's statement was simply, I can do all things, period. That would be the Stoic version. And many of Paul's hearers, the Philippian church, a Greek city-state, adopted by the Romans. They would understand what he's saying. But Paul doesn't end with, I can do all things, I can endure all things, period. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or maybe your copy says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Implied is Christ. This thinking encouraged the the Greek thinking, this stoicism, it encouraged a self-sufficiency in which all the resources for, for getting through life were discovered within yourself. So a bit of a, you know, in vogue type of a philosophy, is it not? But in, in contrast, what does Paul do? His sufficiency, he says, is in Christ. His sufficiency, his contentment, his satisfaction, where does it come from? How can he endure all things regardless of his circumstances? Because his strength and the strength for believers comes through Christ. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can endure all hardships. I can even endure glory. How? Through him who strengthens me. Paul transforms that stoic thought not from himself, not focused inwardly, not looking inside for the answers, but looking outside of himself, looking outside of himself towards Christ. And so self-sufficiency, is this what Paul is pushing? Absolutely not. Contentment through Christ and resting in his work and his provision, yes. And notice this, You might say, well, this is in regards to certain things and only certain things, but Paul doesn't say that. He says, in all things, in every situation, not some and not even most, everything, in everything, regardless of want or plenty, highs or lows, Paul finds Christ is sufficient through them all. He's learned to live in either want or plenty through the empowering work, through the empowering strength of Jesus Christ. Stoics themselves, they recognize that that either want, need, or wealth and glory and prominence, both of them can have a deadly effect 
We've all seen that as well in our own lives, have we not? We can either be ruined by want and need, consumed by it, or ruined, destroyed, consumed by wealth. Either way, both are detrimental. And Paul says, in both of these situations, I have found contentment. I have found the secret to true satisfaction, to true peace in this life. And it is in the person, Christ Jesus. He says, even in the, even in the good days, in the bad days, when I'm experiencing glory and when I'm experiencing persecution, and these aren't hypothetical situations for Paul, he says, in all of those, I see them all as God's sovereign work in the life, my own life. And God is working these things out for my good and God's glory. And by the way, is this not what we alluded to a little bit ago when we dismissed our kiddos this morning? Learning that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the good. He's sovereign over the bad. The difficult things that you face and the great things that you face. Both of these, want and wealth, God is using both of those in the life of a Christian to conform you into the image of Christ and to the dependence of Christ. Those in want, as Paul says, they learn patience. They learn to depend and trust even in their suffering. Those in wealth, what do they need to learn? What does Christ teach them? Humility and dependence on God even in the spite of prospering, not to mention the joy of giving without strings attached. This is so helpful for us as we come together as two churches, now one church. For a time, many of us have known in this room how to suffer, how to go without, how to not have babies cry in the auditorium. You know what that's like. And yet, even in those moments, what happened? The Lord used those times in your life to teach you dependence, to teach you trust. And he wasn't finished with you. He wasn't done with the ministry of First Baptist Church of Hagerstown. He's still determined to bring himself glory through this people and good to this people. And now the danger on the other side, Hagerstown Church, a flash in the pan, bright, bright light across the sky are all two and a half years of glory. We might think in our wealth and in our momentum, we don't need Christ. And yet in that, Paul is saying, hey, learn to depend on Christ. Learn to trust in Christ. Learn humility in the face of your circumstances, though at this point in time, they may be good. You see, Paul is helping us to see that regardless of what we're facing, the good times or the bad, the comfort or the pain, that Christ is all we need. The same is true for Paul. His circumstances often changed just as waves would go up and down and yet he remained in the same position. Why? Because his anchor was in Christ and Christ never changes. I want to ask you this morning, are you anchored in Christ? Really think, are you anchored in Christ? Maybe I could ask it another way. Does the word content, does the word satisfied Describe your current disposition. I'm not encouraging you to be unconcerned or passive, but I want you to truly consider your own life. Are you at rest this morning? Are you at peace? Are you satisfied? The invitation is there for you this morning to do just as our brother Paul did. To look beyond the circumstances, the need for more, regardless of your current place. To look beyond that and look towards Christ and see that truly in Him you can and will be satisfied. I want you to know that regardless of where you're at, whether you are, this is your first time stepping into a church that preaches the gospel, or this is your 100th time this year. Know this, that there is no true need that does not find its satisfaction in Jesus Christ. There is no true need that does not find its satisfaction in Jesus Christ. You say, but Pastor Josh, you don't understand. You're not 15. You don't know what it's like to be, well, of course I do. But besides all that, it doesn't matter whether I know or not. 
Christ is the answer. Christ offers true satisfaction and contentment. You say, but you don't know. You've never been at my age. You've never been in your 80s. You're exactly right. I haven't. And I pray to God that I will at one point. And when I do, I hope that I will have the same testimony that Paul does and that hopefully you do, that Christ is enough and that in him we can find true satisfaction and contentment, not in ourselves, but in someone else, in a Savior no true need that does not need or that does not find its satisfaction in Christ the greatest need that I see and hear through the scriptures that man has is the need to be forgiven yesterday as we went through the membership matters workshop which by the way if you didn't make it that I would encourage you if you are a member but you'd like to learn more about Hagerstown Church we have another one that's coming up the first of the year we might if there's interest get another one started Additionally, uh, if, you're, if you've been visiting or you want to learn more about what this church believes, who we are, where we're going, I would invite you to be a part of our next class. But in our class yesterday, in the Membership Matters workshop, we spent some time looking at what the gospel actually is. The gospel was this, that God is creator. He created all things. He sustains all things even now. And creator God, he is holy. And that holy creator God, free from sin, looks upon his creatures and says, you are accountable to me. And he gives us his law. That's God. But what about man? Well, man, as we saw a moment ago, is a dependent creature. God and his law as well. And yet we have sinned against each and every one of us. The Bible makes it incredibly clear that all men are accountable to God and all men have broken God's law. Every single one of us have sinned against him. And so now, because our God is holy, justice must be done. The price for our sin must be paid, and it will be done so insufficiently by your damnation to hell. This is your greatest need, to be forgiven of that, to be restored to God, to have your sins forgiven. And this is where our Savior, our Lord Christ comes in he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, on you, and learn of me, he says. He comes out there in Mark chapter 1 saying, repent, turn from your sin, and believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The good news is that Jesus will forgive you of your sins. That he will take your unrighteousness upon himself and pay your penalty. He will take his righteousness of his holy, obedient life to the Father in submission to the law of God and he will place those clean robes on you. This is the gospel. And so chief among our needs is the need to be forgiven. What satisfaction do you need aside from that? Which is greater? Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us restoration in relationship with the Father. And so we've all sinned. We all need a Savior. Jesus meets that need. If you're here this morning, I would challenge you to consider, are you in Christ this morning? Have you truly turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus? It's not by works of righteousness which you have done. It's not by works of righteousness that you will be saved. But placing your faith, resting in Jesus' completed work, this is where salvation comes. And this is the chief cornerstone for Paul as he considers his own satisfaction. This is where it all begins. While the rest of the world wanders aimlessly about, concerned for their own current and future needs, the Christian lays down his head on the pillow of God's sovereignty and he rests. Not because they know what tomorrow holds. That's not what we claim but church we are able to rest we're able to be satisfied because we know who holds tomorrow and so god will either meet your need or he will give you the strength to endure it we can be content because he is kind he is sovereign he meets our needs he always supplies and because of that here's the second point be confident christian in god's supply be confident in God's supply. He never overcommits. 
He's promised and he will deliver. Look at verse 18. The apostle Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they're a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He goes on in verse 19 to say, and my God will supply every need of yours, Philippi church, and he'll do so according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul had learned to be content in every situation because he knew that Christ was with him and Christ was enough. Time and time again, he had come through for Paul, proving that he was dependable and that his supply demanded, welcomed our confidence. It's a beautiful thing this morning as I saw God weaving together our Sunday school hour and our worship hour as well. As we looked at the life of Abraham, Abraham could see on the path as he walked, as our brother Chuck mentioned this morning, as he walked along on the path that God had laid out for him, taking step in faith after step of faith. He could look back in his own life and see how would he know that God would be faithful to him in the future? He could turn around and see that God had been faithful to him in the past. Speaking of his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would turn there, if you have your copy of God's word with you. Paul lets the Corinthian church know a little bit about his own personal life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says there in verse 8, speaking of his thorn in the flesh, his physical ailments, he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me, or that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is is made perfect in weakness. In response to God's comments there to Paul, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I will boast all the more gladly of my pain and suffering so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content, there it is again, with weaknesses. I am content with insults. I am content with hardships. I am content with persecution. I'm content with calamities. He says, why? Because when I am weak, when I experience pain, when I experience a struggle and a challenge in this life, he says, then in the power of Christ joined with me, I am strong. Again, we see through the testimony of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is such a heart-rendering statement we see from Paul. Toward the end of his life, he says, at my first offense, no one came and stood by me. Everyone deserted me. As he stands before Caesar, they all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, he says. The Lord stood by me. Everybody else, they deserted me. The Lord stood by me, it says in verse 17. And what did he do? He strengthened me. In his weakness, in the absence of his brothers and sisters whom he loved dearly and frankly needed, in his weakness, he found strength because of Christ's presence standing by him. And to what point? So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the mouths of lions. This morning, in our scripture reading, we heard this from our brother Dan. Habakkuk chapter 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You see, it's the Lord and the presence of the believer that gives true strength and satisfaction and the ability to press on. I don't know where you're at this morning. We are coming from various places, heading in different directions. And yet for those who are in Christ, here's the promise. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He'll meet your needs. 
He'll supply the strength. This is his track record. Paul was able to look back at his life and see all the times that God had met his need. He was able to look forward to the, to the word of God and in faith to grasp it, and thereby to receive strength. But some of us this morning, we can't say what Paul says. We can't say that every need has been supplied. Maybe it's because we define need differently. Maybe need actually is a want. Furthermore, maybe the thing that you need or think you need is not only not a need but a want, but it's also unholy and possibly even sin. In contrast to God's word, maybe it is. He promises to meet the needs of those who call upon him. He promises to meet the needs of those who depend on him. You may ask, how can I be sure that he will meet my large needs? He's only met my little ones. Well, that's precisely how he will do it. That's precisely how he'll show his faithfulness, that he is faithful in the little. If he is, he'll be faithful in the large. If he was faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the future. By the way, in times of extreme neediness, in times of extreme pain, in the times of extreme persecution, the Bible promises us, God says to his saints, that he will be present in a special way for those who call upon him in the day of trouble. If you're suffering this morning, there's a promise for you. Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18. Starting in verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord delivers them from all their troubles. And look at verse 18. Write this down. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord, Yahweh, is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord, Yahweh, He saves the crushed in spirit. This is a promise for us this morning. Can we be content in our circumstances? Yes, we can. Because we are to look past our circumstances and look to Christ. Can we have confidence that He will supply our needs? Absolutely. We can look past, again, our circumstances and again look to Christ's faithfulness and God's kindness to us, to us in the person of Christ. Let me ask you this morning, can you say with Paul confidently that God will meet your needs? Can you say that? God will either meet your need or he will give you the strength to endure it. Either way, he always supplies. Remain confident. I think of the psalm. It's kind of an interesting psalm. I believe it's Psalm 17. It's not in my notes this morning. I'll look it up. But the phrasing goes like this. The Lord will either give me the strength to charge a troop and he'll also give me the strength to jump the wall. It's almost like if you're cornered by a troop, he'll either give you the strength to fight or the ability to jump and run and to escape. And you might be saying this morning, can I really be confident that God will supply my needs? There's been times where I've been in need and even presently am in need and I'm calling out to God. And you say, where is he? And where are my needs being supplied? How about just in the fact that you're still able to say that this morning, that you're still standing, that you're still here, that you're still calling out, you're still in strength, church this morning would you remain confident just as Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi remain confident you've been confident and remain in that way as we transition to the third thing that I notice from this passage that a Christian can be as a result of this truth that God will meet our needs or give us the strength to endure our needs I notice that the Philippians were confident in God, and because of their confidence, they're able to what? They're able to be generous in their giving. They're able to be generous in their giving. Why? Because there's not a lack mentality. They have needs. 
They see needs around them. In faith, in confidence, they know that God has met their needs in the past. He's used them to meet other needs in the past, and he has replenished the cruise of oil, as it were. And so what do they do? They are generous. They are copious. Unless you think that the Philippians needed to be corrected in this matter, that Paul was in some way saying, hey, hey, you finally started being generous again. You need to continue that and don't let it relapse again. Don't think that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would, turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but it'll be worth your time. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the, to the church at Corinth, and he's referencing Philippi. Now, remember, Philippi is in the region of Macedonia. So he's referencing them here. He says in verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Their abundance of joy and, this is the church at Philippi, their joy and their poverty have come together like Mentos and Diet Coke, and they've overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He says in verse 3, for they gave according to their means. In other words, they gave what they could. Paul says, as I testify, they gave more than they could. Beyond their means, he says, of their own accord, they wanted to do this. They were, in fact, it says in verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You see, the church at Philippi, the churches of Macedonia, they saw a great need. This is a different offering, by the way. The church at Philippi was just a generous church. They saw a different need, and they heard about it, and they said, Paul, we want to give. Paul's like, hey, you guys, are, you guys are really poor. I don't know if you know this, but you're really poor. You shouldn't be giving. And they said, no, we insist. And so they give this offering to Paul, and Paul says, my goodness, this is incredible. How can you guys even afford this? This is beyond your means. This is beyond what's even generous. This is ludicrous. They begged earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints there in Jerusalem. They experienced extreme poverty, and yet when they saw a need, they gave generously. I want to just give you two thoughts about this idea of, of being generous or copious in your giving. First, I want to make a case for generosity. Just as you can be content regardless of your circumstances, you can also be generous regardless of your circumstances. I want you to think about that. You can be content regardless of your circumstances because of Christ. And you can also be generous regardless of your circumstances. I think of the widow who gave a little bit. She gave a mite. That translates for us, doesn't it? You don't know how much monetary value a mite has, but a mite? You ever seen a mite? Mites, I mean, like, the, the creature is tiny, right? It's aptly named. She didn't give much, and yet at the same time, she gave so much, and she gave more. Why? Because even in her poverty, she was generous. Is this not the way of Christ? Christ was generous. Christ is generous. And Christians who have been changed, who have received his generosity, we ought to imitate him. Furthermore, Christians have been changed. Our lives are regenerate. We are now able to be generous in a way that the world cannot, in a way that our Savior is and was. Think of Romans chapter 8, verse 32. We thought about this a few weeks ago. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not also graciously give us all of our needs? We who are in Christ receive these things with Christ. And we also, in a way of a con by way of conduit, we give these things. Just as the Philippians were used by God to meet Paul's needs, we can be used by God to meet around us. 
Lest you think that me, that I'm, I'm taking a different position of Paul encouraging the Philippians and saying, hey, you're doing a great job. Lest you think I'm coming from the opposite side and saying you're not doing that. Let me take a moment. Hagerstown Church, you are a generous people. Both First Baptist folks and Hagerstown Church, old First Baptist and old Hagerstown Church folks, you're both generous. As we come together, I believe that God will make us even more generous. And I thank God for that. And here's the thing. Don't stop. Don't stop being generous. Consider the cross of Christ and the, the kindness and the generosity that flows from the hill. The case for generosity. Imitate Christ. Be generous just as our Savior was generous. I also want to look at the consequences of generosity. So we have the case for generosity. Let's look at the consequences of generosity first how about great joy we see that in the in the life of the philippians paul's not telling them in the book of philippians in the letter of philippians to be joyful they are joyful when you're generous you're joyful how many of you uh, would agree with that some of the times in your life that you've been the most generous you've also been the most hilarious right you've also had the most fun isn't it fun surprising people and and doing secret underhanded holy things right not knowing what the letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing as you give gifts and are kind and generous it truly is there is there truly there is great joy found in being generous we see that in this story of the philippians this ancient people but also i would say that it indicates regeneration it indicates regeneration. I want to be extremely careful here. Giving does not secure salvation, but those who are saved will be generous. This is what the Word of God teaches. Generously does not secure our salvation, but it does evidence one's salvation. It testifies, it testifies to a changed, regenerate heart. Sure, there are and can be ulterior motives in the hearts of human beings to give generously, but really, it's out of our impure motives. But when we see someone giving with pure motives and being generous, it evidences that their needs are being met by Christ because they are, in fact, in Christ. It's been said by someone intelligent and divine that where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Hagerstown Church, I want you to think about that this morning. Ask yourself, where is your heart? Where is your treasure? For the Apostle Paul, for the church at Philippi, it's evidenced. that They were pouring their lives out. They were pouring their time out, their treasure, their talents. They were being generous with them for the work of God both amongst neighbors and nations. And Paul looks at that in the life of the Philippians and he says, I'm so encouraged because the seeds that God used to me to plant in your lives, I see them bearing fruit and it evidences to me that you truly are regenerate, that you truly are in Christ, that you truly are saved. If you look at your own life this morning and you say, I, I, I don't consider myself to be a generous person. Well, don't come to the conclusion so quickly that you're not a Christian. But take this, that maybe perhaps through this teaching that God will continue to shape you into the image of Christ, to work in your heart generosity that Christ has given to you and that he would work through in your life. And if you are a generous person today, thank God that he has already done that work in your life and ask him to cause more generosity to flow from you. Finally, as we think about the consequence of generosity, this is an easy one. It deepens the fellowship with the saints. It deepens the fellowship with other saints. I want you to think back to a time when somebody has, God has used somebody in your life to meet your need, a dire need. What did that do to your fellowship one with the other? What did it do? Challenge it or deepen that fellowship? What about how, how many of you have ever worked together to, in a secret way, bless a brother or sister within the church? Maybe without them even knowing. What did that do for your fellowship as you snickered and laughed with joy in your hearts? Gave that gift in a way that nobody would know? Did that deepen your fellowship? Or did that challenge it? 
Church, there are consequences of generosity, and they are glorious. And we see it in the life of the book, of the, of, of the church at Philippi, and throughout this book. Even at the end, as Paul closes the letter, what does he say? He offers a bunch of greetings. That's interesting. He goes through the greetings there, and he says, hey, greet these folks, greet these people, these people say hey. He says, but you want to know who really is excited to say hey to you guys? Caesar's household. How, how in the world did Caesar's household, why do they even care about this little church in Philippi? What's going on there? What's the connection between all of this? Paul's been generous with his life. He's poured it out. He says, I'm ready to be offered up. The Philippians look at Paul and they, they believe in the ministry and the word that, that Paul is, the work that Paul is doing there. And they say, hey, we're going to pour it out too. And what happens as they are generous and as Paul is generous with his life, what happens? Paul says, hey, there's some guys here that you wouldn't have seen in heaven. They weren't in Christ at one point in time, but now Caesar's, some folks from Caesar's household, they're greeting you, Philippians. They care about you. What is this evidence of? That God in his kindness, that God in his faithfulness, God working through Paul and working through the generosity of the Philippians had worked out to grow fruit in Caesar's household. And Paul says, they greet you. Hagerstown Church, if that doesn't excite you, as we conclude this book of Philippians, remember this, that God will either meet your need or he will give you the strength to endure your need. Either way, he always supplies. I want to invite you to just take a time to reflect. So would you indulge me? Would you close your eyes? Would you bow your head? And would you ask the Lord to speak to you now directly through his word to consider your own life, to consider these three truths? We, are, we have the ability to be content in all circumstances. Is that true of you? Are you confident in God's supply? Have you forgotten the things that he's done for you in the past and as you face the future, are you wrestling? Are you struggling? Maybe this morning, the Lord's worked in your heart impressed upon you to be generous in your giving. All these things are connected. I don't know what he's doing in your life, but I know that his word is living, it's active, it's powerful. I'm going to encourage you to submit yourself to his word this morning. To be content in all circumstances. And where you haven't, would you repent? Would you once again trust? Would you rest? Through that, would you give? I should just take a minute and think about that.